Hi, this is Janesh. And this is Pranab. You're tuned in to the 30 Minute Hustle podcast. I was very scared when I called my wife. I spoke to her and uh, everything paid normal for the first 5 minutes. Finally, I asked her, Bhai, what do you want? Why did you ask me to call you? And she's like, didn't you understand a single word of what I said? I was like, what happened? She says, I'm pregnant. You're going to become a father. I was like, what? <laughs> I told her, listen, I'll call you back. <laughs> I disconnected the call. And, you know, I looked around, there's nobody to share that yeah. uh, joy with. <laughs> there were some crabs, algae. <laughs> some birds <laughs> they won't understand <laughs> and i called her back and i asked her what do you want me to do do you want me to come back in 10 days i can be back in france and another couple of days i can fly out she said no no you go for the race i have spoken with my friends family and all they said they will come and help but uh, this was a huge turning point now i had to be back quickly so i started pushing the boat Uh, I remember it was soon after this that I met a ship. Uh, now, as per the rules of the race, you can ask a ship for your position. That is allowed. So I called these guys and asked them, uh, you know, can you give me my position? And they're like, why don't you have a GPS? I said, I'm doing this solo non-stop round the world race without a GPS. I'm alone, etc., etc. Like, fine, here's your GPS position. uh i thought they were indian crew so i asked them confirm uh, nationality he said indian and he asked me confirm nationality i said indian and that guy is like oh you're indian solo sailor do you know apilash tommy who used to sail around the world alone <laughs> i said hello that's me <laughs> but i did meet a lot of indians on the way and they were kind enough to pass message to my wife uh, saying that i was fine so i would give my wife's number to them and they would drop a text message through whatsapp and that's how i stayed in touch hey everyone welcome to the 30 minute hustle today we have a special episode for you we have commander abhilash tomi who created history by being the first indian to complete a solo non-stop unassisted sail around the world he sailed non-stop for 150 days and was only the 79th person in the world who completed this feat To put that into context for you there are more people who climbed mount everest than those who completed a solo non-stop circumnavigation he is only the second officer in the navy to be awarded the kirti chakra and is a recipient of the prestigious tenzing norgay national adventure award tommy was a special invitee and the only asian entrant in the first edition of the non-stop around the world golden globe race after 82 days while in third position tommy's boat was damaged in a storm and he suffered a severe injury to his spine he was rescued after a multinational rescue effort we are incredibly honored to have him as the next guest on our podcast as we speak to him about his early childhood aspirations his formative years in the navy his incredible persistence and about how going to see bill's character in perspective even after being temporarily paralyzed from the leg down after his last race he is back to training for the next golden globe race in 2022 He's raising funds for it as well and we promised him that we'll do our best to spread the word. So feel free to reach out to us if you enjoyed the episode and would like to contribute to his crowdfunding campaign on keto.com. Again, this is on keto.com and it's under the name of Golden Globe Race 2022 India Entry. 
we hope you enjoyed this episode and and uh, keep following us welcome to the 30 minute hustle thanks guys i'm really looking forward to this interaction today if you had to introduce yourself to a stranger abilash what would you introduce yourself as so i'll just say i am abilash and that's it because i really don't enjoy starting a conversation about myself and i hated when people introduce me you know and then uh, then all these standard questions start what did you eat how did you do it going to board <laughs> we are going to try and not uh, go into the same standard questions as much as possible well yeah the problem is after some time it's like somebody is pushing buttons on you so what yeah. did you eat and one button gets pushed and an answer flows out and uh, how was it and another button is pushed and another answer flows out it's become too yeah. uh, mechanical and boring to talk about myself yeah abilash so what led you into the navy and what was your childhood like and what was your dream growing up well uh, you know every kid has got millions of dreams they want to do uh, so many things when they grow up and every year their ideas change but um um one thing that stuck with me was the idea that i had to join the navy and this was fueled by two incidents that happened when i was a kid first uh, my father was in the navy he was uh, the regulating and security officer of a air station which was in cochin an aircraft took off from there and uh, it crashed and the pilots died this made it to the front pages of uh, newspapers and when my mother read it out to me i made her read that news out many times and this kind of inspired me to become a pilot i was uh, i think 6 years old then and at that age i decided that i'm going to become a pilot at that age uh, there was this uh, expedition of the army called uh, the trishna expedition which went around the world with 19 stops and that came uh, on television as a documentary and i was really glued to this documentary and i uh, you know uh, i would say i was inspired by their expedition to be a sailor and then my father took me to a sailing club for a farewell party and that's the first time i saw these canoes and sailboats and all and i was mesmerized it was the same age probably 6 or 7 now these two incidents uh, three incidents actually uh, inspired me to become a pilot and a sailor and the only place you could do both is in the navy so as i grew up i uh, you know nourished this dream of joining the navy and uh, becoming a pilot and a sailor see those were the days when um, opportunities for entertainment were very limited and uh, for us uh, if mom got fed up uh, with us kids uh, she would ask dad and dad would dad would uh, take us to his office and from his office you know we played around uh, with the typewriter and from there somebody would take us to the atc and uh, we would go and see the operations of the atc as 6 7 year old kids and then come down and there would be some aircrafts and you know hop in out of aircrafts uh, so it was a it was an experience it was not uh, through the guidance of somebody that uh, this happened um, so once you joined the navy how what was the next step after joining the navy was it just like just enjoying your your flying and your sailing oh no the navy is uh, you know Uh, i joined the navy as a cadet and a cadet has to undergo 3 years of training before he can be trained further and the first 3 years in the naval academy were extremely difficult 
I remember the words of my father when he came to drop me off uh, at uh, the Naval Academy. He said, "You are going in a boy, but you will come out a man." And uh, the first two weeks were like really fantastic. We watched a lot of movies. We were not um, asked to run. We were marching and you know things like that. And after two weeks, uh, the ragada set started. Uh, every moment was a living hell. And uh, you know, I, I could tell you, but they would sound so illogical and unreasonable. Later on, I came to know that uh, if you leave in the first two weeks, um, uh, you don't have to pay a fine. So they're very nice to you. But after that, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that two weeks of uh, grace period is over, and seriously, it's it's just hell. So uh, the three years were really tough. Uh, very illogical kind of a training, but that's uh, kind of preparing us for uh, the future that uh, lies ahead. Uh, a wide variety of subjects. We got academic subjects, uh, wherein uh, the three years that you're there, you're taught um, um, relativity, uh, operation logistics, uh, television, communication, uh, how radio waves, uh, you know, move, and it's it's a wide variety of uh, subjects. Uh, in addition to this, you got to do your own, uh, all the physical training, which is PT. And PT is—I was very bad at PT. Uh, I was more of a cerebral guy, and I abhorred <laughs> PT. Uh, so you end up doing handsprings to clear exams. You have to do so many pull-ups and toe touches and hundred um, meters in under twelve seconds, and that on an upslope. Uh, so. Uh, it, 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 PT is one part of it. You have got to do drill, and whenever you get uh, five or ten minutes of re rest, some senior will call you and give you uh, a line of punishments. So uh, that's how it was. Uh, after finishing Naval Academy, I uh, underwent uh, further training on a ship called uh, INS Krishna, and after that, uh, another six months on a ship called Rajput as a midshipman. And it was after four years of training that I finally got my commission. But these four years prepared you for more training. Uh, after that, we went to the specialist schools of the Navy, electrical school, engineering school, gunnery, anti-submarine warfare, communications, um, uh, logistics. You go to all these different schools and you're further, further trained. So it was somewhere during this training that uh, I opted for uh, aviation. And then uh, I underwent some training in uh, a place called Sapna and I was seconded to the Air Force for a year. So, uh, Abhilash, so what are the best memories that which you keep going back to in the years of training to become a pilot? So, what is something that is extremely memorable for you? Uh, one thing I remember is that uh, I uh, joined the uh, squadron's quiz team uh, as a first termer, and we won the quiz championship, and we got uh, what's called a liberty. And liberty means you can go step out of the academy and you can do what you want and come back, uh, you know, by whatever time. This is not open to everybody. Six termers can go every Sunday, but uh, if you're a junior guy, you really have to earn it. So that liberty is something that I really remember. I went to Panjim and uh, in 96, I ate about 300 rupees worth of chocolates throughout the day. <laughs> that was uh, quite a lot. Another memory that uh, really comes back to me is um, uh, I always wanted to sail, right? And uh, I'd never been on a boat before. But uh, whenever somebody would ask me, ask uh, for volunteers for joining the Naval Academy sailing team, I would put my hand up and they would ask me, do you know sailing? I would say yes. And then they'd ask me a couple of questions. What's a wang? What's a cunning app? And I was like lost for words. And uh, they say, no, you don't know. You, 
you know, <laughs> get out of this place. <laughs> uh, but I borrowed a lot of books from the library and taught myself sailing. And finally, when somebody asked me, I had the answer. I think it took at least a year to give the right answers. Commissioned as a recon pilot. Am I right in saying that? No, I. you are commissioned as an officer. Um, okay. After that, uh, you choose your specialization. Okay. Uh, flying aviation is a specialization. And in that, you've got three streams. You've got uh, helicopters or reconnaissance or uh, fighters. Okay. So while you were in the, as a reconnaissance pilot, uh, life in the Navy, like, did you have a lot of work to do as a pilot or did you have time to sort of take time for yourself also? Because I know that you, wherever that you were, you you always had some connection to sailing and you always put yourself do, to do that. So how did you manage that? Uh, one year of training with the Air Force was in landlocked places like uh, Allahabad and uh, Yalanka. So there was no sailing that happened, but I did enjoy the flying. In fact, uh, in Yalanka, we, sorry, in Allahabad, there was this little incident with when uh, I took a plane without telling anybody. And <laughs> when I came back, they put me up for stealing a plane. <laughs> I think I'm very proud of that allegation. <laughs> Um, I did fairly well in my flying. I was top two in um, Allahabad and uh, Yalanka also I did very well. Because of which I got to choose which squadron I could join. And uh, the options were uh, Goa, Port Blair and Cochin. And Goa being a party place, you know, fun beaches and all, I opted for Goa. I landed in a squadron called the 310. And when I came there, that's when I realized it was uh, another version of the Naval Academy. Okay. Because this was the backbone of Navy's uh, maritime reconnaissance, an extremely busy and extremely professional squadron. Uh, you cannot afford to not know something or make a mistake. You are always, uh, you know, under the scanner throughout. And uh, the moment I joined, there was a station level exam, which I flunked because uh, I was very good at uh, flying subjects and all. But there are some naval regulations regarding flying, which I was not aware of. Um, well, so, uh, you know, it was a uh, interesting start and it was back to being crazy. Uh, you have a friendly ship leave uh, Karachi Harbour, uh, your aircraft takes off and you go to Jamnagar and chase them. And then you go to uh, Bombay and chase them. From Goa, you chase them, Mangalore, Cochin. Till the time they don't leave Indian waters, you're chasing them. And just uh, the same crew who does that. Um, so, you know, all these things kept happening. Sometimes there would be a fire and uh, in Bombay High and uh, at night you get a message and you're like scrambling to do search and rescue operations. I remember there was this uh, incident where we had a party because the commanding officer was changing. And uh, one of the stewards, uh, when he was uh, heading back from the party, met with a very bad accident and his leg was like really in a very bad shape. And next day morning, four o'clock, uh, we had to take him to Bombay, to a bigger hospital. And I was the only guy who did not drink. So, you know, you go to bed at 12 and uh, you're waking up at 3, firing flight plans, 4, you're in the aircraft, 5, you're taking off and uh, dropping him to Bombay. It was a very interesting time. So, Abhilash, I'm getting off a little off the schedule here. So, why did he steal the plane? I mean, like, what, what was behind that? Uh, well, I was uh, slated for a sortie that day. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're supposed to do some paperwork before you go solo. And this was the first time I was going uh, to a sector alone. Uh, the first time you do a solo is doing circuits around the airfield. Second time you go solo is uh, to the sector. 
and uh, i bungled up in telling people i took off and on my way back somebody realized that i was alone when a pupil is flying alone uh, certain people have to close up there needs to be an acp an approach control pilot a safety pilot uh, one guy should be flying an instructor should be flying in case there's an emergency he should be able to guide you back so none of this was uh, had happened and when i came back uh, somebody heard me and he asked me confirm 9022 solo i said yes sir uh he's like confirmed sublimentment to me i said uh, affirmative and he said keep doing circuits i said okay and i kept doing circuits um finally everybody closed up and i was told to make a uh, approach uh, approach did a missed approach procedure and uh, you know low level overshoot came back did a landing and i was summoned to the uh, cfi's office and there i was made to roll on the corridor wearing stripes as an officer for almost 40 45 minutes and my instructor who knew me very well <laughs> knew that it was a goof up and not an intentional thing went and fell at the feet of the uh, chief flying instructor and said that you know please leave him he's a he's an okay guy he's, he doesn't mean harm but yeah that's that's interesting um so how how long were you you know uh, you know as a reconnaissance uh, pilot and working in that particular base in goa uh how what was the transition from there to when you really started taking up sailing um you know very properly in in navy itself uh, so i was sailing when i was in the naval academy i finally made it to the academy team became the captain defeated nda in the bayangala regatta which is a team racing event uh after that uh, on board ships i was sailing uh, then uh, during my sub courses in valsura which is in jamnagar we had an interesting incident where uh that that sailing club had been destroyed by a storm a couple of years ago uh, the boats were in a very bad shape so three of us four of us volunteered and we uh, you know got some boats operational we went sailing and uh, we didn't realize that the tide runs out very quickly there uh, so the first day i was on a windsurf and i got stuck almost half a kilometer away from land uh, i realized that the boat is not moving it's like stuck and uh, when i jumped off the boat there was just this much okay. water <laughs> yeah, the board not the boat yeah uh, i uh, uh, removed the sail i dragged it on slush uh, all the way up to uh, you know the 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 sailing club and dropped it and i was so tired because every time you put your feet your uh, yeah, leg is going, going in yeah. yeah it's going in and you can't take long strides they are very small strides yeah and after that when i reached uh, these guys are like uh, you know you got to get the board also <laughs> like okay and i walked back half a kilometer and then from there from there i didn't i couldn't get the board back uh, i mean it would have been too tough so i um, swam with it to a jetty called the rosy jetty and i was climbing the rocks with uh, the board on my back full of barnacles i was totally getting bruised and there were these four guys sitting uh, on the jetty four laborers pakistan se aaye okay <laughs> have you come from pakistan <laughs> and i caught that accent on the uh, in the you know <laughs> question and i asked him malayali ano <laughs> turned out they were you know malayalis <laughs> working there and then uh, uh, well that happened one day the next day we went out all the boats had problem uh, we couldn't come back uh, we drifted away and uh, at night a search and rescue was launched uh, an air force helicopter came and uh, rescued us and we were back uh, the next day morning so yes i had that interesting incident um, 
in the squadron uh, when i was in 310 squadron i would regularly go sailing on weekends uh, slowly i made it to the uh, goa naval area sailing team from there i jumped into uh, the western naval commands team uh, from there i uh, even represented the navy in uh, enterprise world championships and uh, that's uh, when i uh, got a coach from italy uh, to start sailing the lasers so i shifted to lasers initially of course uh, the learning curve was very steep i was right at the bottom but uh, in 6 months uh, i finished uh, i think uh, 10th in uh, uh, an asian sailing uh, regatta in qatar and i finished 4th in the national uh, in the in the coastal nationals in chennai um so yes i kept flying and i kept doing a lot of sailing and uh, that's the advantage that i had as a pilot uh, we were always land based and i could find time to go and sail so um while sailing and you know scaling your scaling and also being a pilot on land so what was the actions like how are you prioritizing and plus what is the call that you had to take in life that yes i'll extremely focus on sailing and make this uh, you know something which is which you do on a daily basis and which is your regular activity now yeah there a lot of opposition before i joined the navy dad was like become an engineer mom was like becoming a become a doctor um i said no i want to join the navy and dad says if you want to become a government servant why don't you clear your engineering write ias and then you know join the government um finally when i became a pilot uh, parents were a bit proud but then i started sailing and then sailing means you're tanning a lot uh, you become skinny look like a scarecrow and you are what 25 uh, parents are looking for a bride and they would say nobody is going to marry you <laughs> i can't just stick to flying and my uh, colleagues in aviation would say what's your problem man you just stick to flying for 20 years quit and become a civil pilot and there's loads of money to be made uh, more than this uh, my seniors the supervisory officers had even more problems because there is a pilot who's not flying you know uh, uh, one month he is in squadron one month he is off and the next month he comes back and we have to start all over with him and then he is again missing for saving uh that's when um, i remember uh, a couple of my seniors uh, commander shekhawat and commander rp singh uh, they sat me down in the squadron uh, uh, breakfast room and they asked me what do you want to do do you want to sail or fly you can't do both you know we, we can't keep you here and send you sailing uh, i said uh, i really want to give sailing a try but uh, don't ask me to take a decision right now Uh, because i'm just starting off with sailing uh, so this guy commander shekhawat tells me ki uh, how much time do you need i said give me at least a couple of years so okay i will give you a couple of years but after 2 years don't come back and tell me that you are the navy champion right you at least uh, say i've made it to the olympics or something <laughs> not the navy champion i said thanks a lot and they kept their promise whenever i had to go sailing they would not ask a single question and they would just uh, let me go sailing and this uh, thing continued in um, even in port blair uh, in the squadron that i was in 318 the commanding officer there would let me off for sailing whenever i was called i mean you i'm sure you also had a way of of making them understand how passionate you were about sailing right and that's sort of what they picked up on when they wanted to uh, let you go sailing also it was a, it was a happy coincidence that uh, commander shekhawat was uh, a big time squash player uh, 
and he understood uh, you know how sports can uh, how playing sports can contribute uh, to what you do in the squadron so if you play sports you uh, kind of take more risk you're not you know bound by those same regulations you think out of the box uh, he kind of understood that a person who plays sports brings all these qualities into the squadron Mm-hmm. and uh, uh, trust me uh, 20 years in the navy both sailing and flying i believe you get much more maturity by uh, doing more things especially sailing because when i started sailing i was first into rowing and then i started sailing i there was so much that sailing actually teaches you more than many other sports i think you're you're out in the elements and then you're out in the sea um not Absolutely. a lot of sailing imagine this i used to be uh, uh, in a uh, sailing club inwtc bombay and i used to see these little kids eight year old kids rigging their own boat and uh, going out to sea alone all by themselves doing all those uh, things falling into the sea and jumping onto their boat writing their boat getting it back the kind of character development that happens in sailing does not happen in any other sport sailing still remains free of uh, match fixing it still remains free of uh, drug abuse there is no major scandal uh, which has affected almost every other sport in the world sailing still remains a very clean uh, sport nice um, i'm going to ask you a little more about how you want to get the younger generation into sailing a little later in the podcast but now i want to sort of transition into how you got into these um, you know long distance sailing uh, competition so let's say two years uh, you've been sailing and then how did that transition did you go back after two years and tell them this is what i've done so in that uh, two years time that he gave me i um, finished fourth in uh, the coastal nationals in lake so i went for the world enterprise championship and all so they knew that i was at least going somewhere uh, you know may not be the olympics or asian games but yes i was making some progress I got transferred out of that squadron, uh, went to Bombay, and uh, on a ship, and that was for some uh, say time I had to do at sea uh, to get my next uh, promotion and career and all that. That's when the Volvo Ocean Race came to India, and the Navy deputed me uh, to manage that race. Before that, Ericsson One, which at that time was one of the fastest boats in the world, came to Cochin. as part of a um, as part of its hospitality run uh, so ericsson was you know getting its clients together and uh, doing a lot of sailing and offsites with them i was sent to manage the stay of ericsson in cochin and at the end of uh, its stay uh, those guys invited me to sail with them to bombay so i sailed with them to bombay and this was uh, 2008 january february in 2008 december the volvo ocean race was coming to cochin the first time it was uh, hitting a port in india okay. sorry in asia not even in india asia yeah. and the saying when that cochin uh, which has not hosted a cycle race was hosting the volvo ocean race right uh, the navy uh, rather the yai promised to send two officers to manage uh, the events one was a on water technical uh, committee guy on board a technical manager who was uh, supposed to deal with the start and finish and all those things and the other officer was the yacht services manager and i was appointed as a yacht services manager just Now, a question uh, amalash uh, yeah. when you mean it came to cochin uh, i know that volvo ocean races actually cross uh, particular ports 
so was there was it in a situation where they are particularly crossing this port uh, and then you have to be on land to make sure that everything is is all right with them is that what what the function was no 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 they they were stopping in cochin okay okay all they right. had a pit stop for two weeks in cochin okay all right okay and each teams had uh, budgets of hundreds oh. of crores yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah. ericsson 3 or was it ericsson 4 um the skipper was a five time olympic medalist tobin grail yeah. uh, between those uh, 10 boats they had almost uh, i don't know probably 80 olympic medals or something it was like huge and it was a huge huge event so i was appointed as a yacht services manager we had uh, about i don't know acres of land under me and everything uh, in that area the technical area was my responsibility so toilets uh, water uh, electricity forklift crane um, security garbage disposal uh, marking out the team bases and any demands of the team managers i had to meet it and i had one uh, college student under me uh, working as my uh, you know in- intern or whatever volunteer and it was just the two of us and um, no money to speak of uh, the event was hosted by cochin port trust a consortium of cochin port trust and kerala tourism so um, well uh, it was a big thing you know because uh, in that 6 uh, months i lost about 10 kilos of weight it was a lot of hard work for me i had no idea what was to be done so i started from scratch i had never done this job before uh, started from scratch uh, these guys had finalized a particular crane which was supposed to lift out the boats now that crane I, i went and inspected that crane it was a 50 year old dc floating crane direct current floating crane and uh, i checked its graphs and all and there was no way this crane could lift up those boats and put it on land and the operation would be so slow that uh, by the time the first boat is uh, you know uh, out of water Uh, the race might restart and they would be heading off to singapore so i wrote, told the porters guys uh, they wouldn't listen finally i had to write to volvo directly and told them that this crane is not going to work and they dispatched a couple of their officials to cochin had a relook at the crane and they said no this is not going to work and we started searching for cranes there's only one crane which could pick out those boats out of water in india okay in the wow. entire country there was only one crane which could do that job and that was busy in jaipur it couldn't be mobilized so we finally had to get a crane from pune which would come down to uh, cochin and instead of picking the entire boat out of water we removed the mast first and then the boat out etc uh, etc et we had to do a lot of improvisations i remember one um, one night uh, 2 in the morning i got a call saying that uh, the quality of electricity is very bad and uh, i was like <laughs> either we have electricity or we don't have electricity <laughs> what do you mean by quality of electricity uh, and they are like uh, voltage is fluctuating the frequency is not stable and what not um, the next day i had to get a couple of generators and completely change the electric supply there so you know it was like managing a kitchen something was going wrong all the while and you had to be on the ball to Uh, fix it but the good thing is uh, at the end of it i got a job offer from valenius williamson which is doing logistics and they said you join us in 3 years we'll make your country head and i was like uh, i can't leave the navy 
And they're like, we'll pay your bond and, you know, get you off. I said, no, thanks. Uh, Ericsson said, next time there is a race and they're participating, uh, they'll call me to sail with them. But uh, Ericsson, for Ericsson, that was the last Volvo Ocean race they did. Mm. So this is how my ocean sailing started. Soon after uh, Volvo Ocean Race, um, I was called to uh, Oman, Salala, where uh, Sir C. V. Raman's son, Professor Radha Krishnan, he had built a boat in India and he was uh, sailing that boat around the world. He wanted volunteers, Navy sent me for experience. Uh, I sailed to Mukalla and by the time we reached Mukalla, we realized that the boat was destroying itself. Everything that could fail had failed. Steering failed, uh, sails failed, rigging failed, potholes broke, autopilots uh, not holding, engine failed, everything, dagger boats broke, everything was breaking. But we sailed from Mukalla and reached Aden Sama and from there I asked uh, the Navy to call me back. I came back and that's when I came to know about um, Captain Dilip Donde's uh, project going around the world. Navy was looking for a volunteer to help him with preparing the boat. And uh, I said, I would like to do that. And the Navy immediately deputed me as his uh, support support guy. Nice. So were there other people of your caliber in the Navy or, or other than the Lip Donde and then you? Um, uh, were you the only person there or did you have to sort of work your way through to make sure that you're that person? See, uh, there were other volunteers. But I believe if they had to uh, reach my level of experience, they would have had to put in another three years of effort. Um, I was, at least I could take a dinghy around uh, a triangular course, you know. <laughs> at least I knew what a big boat looked like. <laughs> uh, and at least I had some, at least, say, a thousand miles of sailing on big boats. So I don't think anybody else had that sort of an experience. Um, and that's why the Navy picked me to be his short support. So how is it working with uh, Captain Dilip Donde? What, what did you what did you actually soak from him that helped you later on? So Captain Donde built uh, this boat, uh, Made, and uh, from what I understand, he never left the town in which the boat was. If he had to go to Bombay, he'll take the boat with him. Oh, no, he was so scared. <laughs> what if something happened when he was not around? The only time he left the boat and went somewhere was when I joined. Uh, the project. I joined, uh, he left, uh, he took a break and he went home and all. He said, uh, you continue the work that's happening in the boat. And I had no idea how to maintain a big boat or how to, you know, do anything on a big boat. I couldn't even drive a screw, screw in. So I did what I could, which was, I would land up on the boat and I would broom, uh, clean the toilets, you know, do all these things every day. And uh, another thing I did is uh, I used to meticulously maintain a diary where I wrote down all the things that needed to be done. Every small and big job was meticulously listed down. And every day I would, uh, you know, call the workers, make them work and strike it off. As the workers were working, I would, uh, you know, observe, learn from them. And slowly I started doing things myself. So say, for example, uh, people came to do um, servicing of the engine. I would watch them. The second time I would help them and probably third or fourth time I actually started doing these jobs myself. So that's how I uh, learned uh, on the job. Uh, Captain Donde went to uh, Colombo and Mauritius uh, as part of his own training and I sailed with him to these two places. So I was adding to 
the sailing miles that I had. Nice. So um, after Captain Donde did his whole long distance uh, circumnavigation, um, and then was it a dis- it it was a decision by Navy, right, for them to actually get another naval person to uh, do the uh, circumnavigation? Was it something that you had to start off, or was the idea already there in the Navy? See, this entire circumnavigation project was uh, being driven by Admiral Manoharavati. Uh, in 1950s, he was in England when he found a book by a guy called Joshua Slocum on how he sailed around the world alone. Joshua Slocum is the first human to sail around the world alone. He was uh, really inspired by that book. He came back to India and he tried to impress upon a lot of Navy chiefs and corporates to fund a similar expedition. But um, finally, uh, things became a reality only in 2006 when Admiral Arun Prakash gave the money for this project. So Admiral Avati was a really far-sighted man. He started with the circumnavigation with four stops, uh, made the buy, uh, made the navy buy that idea. Uh, Captain Donne went around the world with four stops, and now when he saw that this expedition is becoming a reality, he decided to take it one step ahead and get somebody to do a non-stop circumnavigation. And he asked me first because, uh, you know, I, again, was at the right spot and I had more experience than anybody else. Um, Had at least, uh, say, 3,000 miles of sailing, had experience maintaining this boat and all. Before he could finish his question, I said yes. I said yes because uh, since 1999, I've been thinking of doing a solo circumnavigation. Uh, there was this race called Around Alone. I read about it in a magazine. A woman called Isabel Otisia was leading those races. And uh, I was a cadet at Naval Academy. I thought someday I'm going to do a circumnavigation. And I was already saving money to buy a boat. When the Navy says, uh, you know, here's a million dollar yacht. Uh, why don't you take the boat and sail around the world? How can you say no? It's your dream after all sort of training how early did it start for you i know 1999 you said that you wanted to do it and things sort of came together but uh, like pranab asked what was the preparation when did it start and how did the training start see it uh, i was asked this question in 2009 december we were in new zealand when captain donde stopped in uh, cape town uh, we were sitting in a sushi joint and on the back of a napkin paper napkin we made the plan we just had received invitation to take part in the Cape to Rio race. Now, if we took part in that race, we were sailing from India to Cape Town, Cape Town to Brazil, Brazil to Cape Town, and back to India, which is almost uh, 17,000 miles. And uh, he said that this is a very good um, um, uh, way to train you. We came back and we put this up to the Navy, and Navy bought the idea. Uh, four of us sailed from uh, Goa all the way up to Cape Town. Captain Donde was uh, the skipper. We crossed the Atlantic with the same configuration. At Rio, I took over the boat and uh, along with another officer, we did a short-handed crossing of the Atlantic. We reached uh, Cape Town, did a short refit and I sailed all the way back to India alone. We sailed back to India, uh, sorry, I sailed back to India alone. So uh, now 16 plus another earlier 3,000, I had almost 20,000 miles of sailing experience. there were some classroom instructions that I had to undergo. Uh, did some training on search and rescue, medicine, uh, media editing, survival. And uh, I did all these training in uh, Cochin. And this is what uh, my 
training was. But of course, the most important part of the training was the actual sailing. Uh, there's nothing that can uh, substitute for that. So how was your first journey alone to India? It was really crazy. I started from Cape Town. I left uh, at noon and uh, the sea was really peaceful. Uh, that was because I was in the lee of uh, the 12 apostles. They have huge uh, mountains there. The moment I moved away from them, it started blowing a gale, 35, 40 knots. Um, and in the next four days, I tore a sail. My uh, Winwin autopilot uh, broke, uh, as in the welding broke. My uh, autopilots were totally misbehaving. The galley caught fire. The um, uh, generator caught fire. And I was seasick. I was just throwing up. Uh, and I, I still remember this. I was rounding Cape of Good Hope. Um, I saw another ship on my uh, display. And I called them to tell them to keep clear of me. The captain turned out to be a Goan. And uh, he asked me, <laughs> confirm sailing boat? I said, affirmative. Uh, he says, uh, how many crew? I said, alone. I said, <laughs> which nationality? I said, Indian. He said, God, you must be crazy to be out in this weather. <laughs> I, I said, I'm from the Navy. <laughs> uh, it was really bad. And uh, I had a lot of mental issues, uh, you know, anger and um, frustration, anxiety. Uh, I really had to deal with the mental issues first. And it was only after that that I could get a hold of the boat. But um, we managed to sail from Cape Town to Goa in 33 days. And I think that was a very fast passage, especially because I was alone. Abhilash, like you're talking about how it was such so many things that happened, you know, for for any layman uh, or or a normal person. Of course, you are extra extraordinary, according to me. So I would say for any normal person, it would be easily the 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 next thing would be like, why would I go back to sailing, right? You had your uh, anger issues, your mental issues, plus all this is happening. What was the bug that you caught on? Like, what is that, that that bug that caught you on after this? I really don't know. Every time I went to sea, I was like, this is the last time I'm going to sail. Forget the mental issues. Uh, I'll tell you some other issues, which are like really horrifying. Uh, the first time I sailed with Captain Donde to uh, Mauritius, I was constipated. In 16 days, I went to the loo only twice. And every moment I'm like, oh God, you know, okay, 10 days later, I'll find a toilet and I'll find a bed and air conditioning and a shower. And then the speed would drop a bit. And then I would like, oh, damn, another 12 days, I'll find, a, uh, you know, all these things. It was very difficult. And I was like, I'm not going to step on a boat again. And I reach uh, uh, Mauritius and Captain Donde sails back alone and you see a sailboat leave a harbor. It's so romantic. You want to be on the sailboat. Uh, Captain Donde finished his circumnavigation. He came back and uh, uh, he finished in Bombay and we had to drop the boat back in Goa. So he said, uh, since you're planning a non-stop circumnavigation, why don't you skip the boat? I'll give you a crew of four people and uh, you drop the boat. I said, fine. And we crossed the fairway boy and I was so seasick. I kept vomiting uh, everything that I had. And I just was flat till the boat reached Goa. I don't know who got the boat to Goa, but I was like in that same bunk, in the same position, not eating, not standing up, not talking to anybody. 
we reach Goa and um, uh, you know when you see destination you forget uh, seasickness yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so <laughs> i was like up and uh, uh, totally taking credit for everything and we put the boat alongside uh, the boat had uh, commander mahesh uh, he met uh, captain donde in the evening over dinner and he said i don't think this guy can go around the world he's so seasick i can't tell you uh another time i was sailing with uh, professor radha krishnan i was again so seasick that he said the next port we touch i want you off my boat <laughs> i was literally being kicked out of a boat um so yes yeah, sailing is not such a fun experience but uh, yeah and every time i was uncomfortable i would swear i'm not going to do it again but something would happen and i just couldn't imagine not being on a boat and i would jump back in is that sort of the perseverance that you've always had as a person i think so i think so you know i am i can really really uh, persevere and i think that uh, in a way it came from reading books uh, um, reading books which were way above my level uh, anybody can read a short story or a small fiction but i would get hold of these really serious books uh and start reading it i couldn't understand a word but i realized that just by persevering just by reading from beginning to end you could get uh, what the book is trying to tell you so i read um, arnold toynbee in 10th standard i read uh, nehru's discovery of india in 10th i read uh, all the greek philosophers when i was in 11th and uh, they look very formidable but i realized it's just a matter of starting and being just persevering and you reach the end i also uh, one of your interviews and i was doing my research i also heard about how such a voracious reader you were as a kid and then your parents would ask you to go out and and also spend some <laughs> oh yes they they, they 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 thought that i lacked practical skills <laughs> you know i could read anna karenina when i was in 9th i read moby dick the original unabridged version and i was in 8th but uh, they were like uh, i don't think you can catch a bus and go anywhere <laughs> and they would give me these little tasks give me uh, you know 10 rupees in my pocket and say go to mg road and come back <laughs> on a bus and uh, you know go to the market and buy 1 uh, kilo of tomatoes uh, so yeah they they really thought i would be a big failure when i grew up so abhilash so here you were training and plus uh, getting so uh, ask your teammates asking you not to be on the boat anymore so what led you to the golden race the golden globe race yes well uh, before that i did the uh, non stop circumnavigation um and by the time i got used to uh, being at sea so much that i started detesting life on land i came back and uh, i was looking for uh, other ways to sail I took part in um, two editions of Korea Cup. I went to uh, Spain and took part in Copa del Rey. Um uh, finally this race was announced, the Golden Globe race, and did some uh, back of the hand calculations and I realized it's the cheapest single-handed circumnavigation race you can do. Uh and that's where it all started. I wrote to these guys who are organizing the race and they said if you uh, are planning to take part in this race we will give you a special invitation and i was one of the three special invitees to the golden globe race and what was the most memorable race before the golden globe like you know what was the most important race for you well all races were interesting but i remember this incident in uh, spain 
my friend fix up, fixed up uh, a position for me in one of the boards called Dr. Sinis. Uh, and when I went there, uh, this was Palma, Mallorca. They really didn't want me on the boat. Uh, they had, uh, you know, a full set crew, very, very trained. Uh, so the, on the first day, they took me on a training um, sail. I came back and uh, they started telling me, uh, okay, you know, this is what a sail looks like. Um, we have to insert baton so that it maintains the shape. So can you just tie this thread at the end of the baton? And I would like, yeah, sure. And I did that. Uh, first race, they didn't take me. Second race, uh, they grudgingly took me. Uh, and they, me, they uh, my job was to grind a winch. That's all. And that too on downwind. Uh, so I was, you know, the spinnaker uh, trimmers uh, understudy. Uh, when I came back, they're like, come with us for the next race as well. Uh, my friend asked them, they're like, you know, this job is done by two people. Uh, one guy does it uh, half the downwind and the other guy takes over and does it the rest of the half. This guy goes like an engine and he can do it by himself. So we are taking him. So second day they took me and again, they're telling me, you know, this sheet, this is a main sheet and this is a jib sheet and how they control sales. They're like, fantastic. I think on the third day, the King of Spain came and he was taking part in the race. They did an interview of the King of Spain. It came in the newspaper and one half was King of Spain is here to take part in this race, Copa del Rey. And the other half is Abhilash Tommy is also here taking part in Copa del Rey. <laughs> And that day when I walked to the boat, the owner of uh, the, the boat was standing with the newspaper in his hand. He's like, is this you? I said, yeah. <laughs> the tactician was, damn, you've done a circumnavigation. I said, yeah. How many people? I said, solo. Where all did you stop? I said, nowhere. <laughs> like, Bloody hell, we were teaching you how what a sail looks like. I said, I'm open to learning. <laughs> wow, that's such a, that's, that's, um, uh, I don't know, I don't know the right word to put, put, but then for someone like you to sit and listen to that, I think you that, that, always, that's, you that's, always have that, that mindset of learning anything from anywhere, right? I'm guessing. Exactly. So, you know, all my life, I believe that uh, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So the onus is on the student, not on the teacher. If you are ready, anybody and anything can become a teacher. And yes, I did learn a lot from them. Um, so tell us about how your Golden Globe uh, race went. I know there's a lot that that you've spoken about the incident and all that, but I'd like to know what you really took away from the Golden Ra Globe race. Uh, it was a very difficult endeavor for me. Um, because, you know, I had to get the money in place, I had to build a boat, um, take it to Europe. Uh, so the money was like coming in, in, let's say, batches. I would secure some funding, so X amount of job would get over, and get another 20 lakhs from somewhere, and, uh, you know, the boat builder would buy a mast. And so this kept going on like that. And then finally, um, I had to take a lot of uh, loans. Uh, there was a lot of debt. And in between, I decided to get married. Uh, so told my wife, let's get married. She's like, fine. Uh, I said, listen, I've got only minus 15,000 in my account, so we cannot have a wedding. She's like, no problem. And uh, for witness, I got uh, Captain Donde and the boat builder. <laughs> <laughs> that time, my wife looks at me and she's like, uh, are you building another boat? <laughs> 
Or are we getting married? <laughs> I said, well, it's, it's the same, you know. <laughs> uh, so I got married for 350 rupees. And uh, I paid 50 rupees for Vada Pao, which I fed the witnesses. And uh, that, that's how much I spent on my wedding. That's when I get a message from the customs agent in Rotterdam, who says that uh, you need to pay 55 lakhs as that. Uh, he, says, he says, yes, they're demanding 55 lakhs, otherwise they won't release your boat. I told him, listen, I've paid all the uh, taxes in India. I don't have to pay it again there. So these guys are like, no, but uh, the thing is that uh, they want it as a deposit and they'll return it once you go back. I was like, you know, I got minus 15,000. I don't have the money, you figure out. <laughs> we went and convinced them and the boat came out and uh, I flew down to Netherlands, prepared it. Um, sail alone to Falmouth, had a, a few days of activity, then sail alone to um, uh, France uh, for the pre-start. But I, uh, the, the, the shortage of money really, really uh, hit me. How so did I couldn't... you, sorry, Abhilash, but then uh, for someone like me thinking about it, um, it must have been a lot of pressure on you, right? How, how did you even like deal with this sort of pressure when, when you are, uh, when when you're racing for such an important and a difficult race where you have to already get your mindset up and ready, right? It was a lot of pressure. And uh, lack of money also meant that I had uh, hardly any support staff. And uh, with no support staff, I was doing all the jobs myself, preparing charts and uh, checking out everything on the boat and this and that. It was a lot of pressure. We, um, it was tough. When I started the race for the first 10 days, my priority was to regain my health. So I only ate and slept. I was not racing at least for the first 10 days. Well, it was a solo, non-stop, round-the-world race with technology of 1968. So no GPS, only a sextant, no electronic watches, only wind-up clocks, no logs, only taffrail logs, no electronic charts. Uh, it was, you know, going back to the basics of Sailing. Um, I obviously saw uh, mentally. I divided the race into uh, up to the equator, which is North Atlantic, then South Atlantic, then Indian Ocean, then Pacific, and then again South Atlantic and North Atlantic. That's how I divided it. But uh, when I started the race, I realized that I was really tired. Uh, eyes couldn't focus. A lot of you know headache and things like that. Because of lack of sleep, overexertion, whatnot. Uh, since it was a very long race, I decided to take it very easy the first 10 days. And I was only eating and sleeping, eating and sleeping and generally keeping a lookout, not pushing the boat at all. There were people who would uh, hoist a spinnaker and zip past me and they would call me on VHF and say, hey, why don't you put up the spinnaker? You know, I said, <laughs> not now. Uh, let me take rest. <laughs> uh, we were 18 of us. Uh, our first checkpoint was uh, in the Canary Islands. There was a gate. We were supposed to cross that gate. Uh, I crossed it in 10th position. But soon after I crossed that gate, I got a message from the race organizers saying that I had to speak with my wife on satellite. Now, this is um, really extraordinary because as per the rules of the race, you cannot speak with anybody using satellite phone other than the race organizers. And I was like, you know, did something happen? Uh, has something gone wrong? I was very scared when I called my wife. I spoke to her and uh, everything appeared normal for the first five minutes. 
finally i asked her bhai what do you want why did you ask me to call you and she's like didn't you understand a single word of what i said i was like what happened she says i am pregnant you're going to become a father i was like what <laughs> i told her listen i'll call you back <laughs> i disconnected the call <laughs> and you know i looked around there's nobody to share that yeah. uh, joy with <laughs> there's some crabs algae <laughs> some birds <laughs> they won't understand <laughs> and i called her back and i asked her what do you want me to do do you want me to come back in 10 days i can be back in france and another couple of days i can fly out she said no no you go for the race i have spoken with my friends family and all they said they will come and help but uh, this was a huge turning point now i had to be back quickly so i started pushing the boat uh i remember it was soon after this that i met a ship uh now as per the rules of the race you can ask a ship for your position that is allowed so i called these guys and asked them uh, you know can you give me my position and they're like why don't you have a gps i said i'm doing this solo non stop round the world race without a gps i'm alone etc etc like fine here's your gps position uh I thought they were Indian crew, so I asked them confirm uh, nationality. He said Indian, and he asked me confirm nationality. I said Indian, and that guy is like, "Oh, you're Indian solo sailor. Do you know Abhilash Tommy, who used to sail around the world alone?" <laughs> I said, "Hello, that's me." <laughs> But I did meet a lot of Indians on the way, and they were kind enough to pass message to my wife, uh, saying that I was fine. so i would give my wife's number to them and they would drop a text message through whatsapp and uh, that's how i stayed in touch um now i did uh, tactically i did something very different from what others did everybody headed straight for cape of good hope i went towards the coast of brazil i wanted to go around the saint helena high it increased the distance uh, quite a bit and from 10th i probably uh, fell down to 16th position at one point no maybe 14th i don't know but um uh, this decision really helped me later uh, when i was rounding cape of good hope i reached fifth position because a lot of guys got stuck in that uh, high pressure area uh, i rounded cape of good hope at uh, 40 or 42 south while some other people went for 37 and this also helped me because i had currents with me the closer you go to cape of good hope you got uh, the agulas which are very strong currents against you and i remember doing 240 nautical miles in one day 24 hours which is like averaging 10 knots on a boat that cannot do more than 6 and a half right and uh, that was like uh, people couldn't believe it they thought that the navy was helping me by sending me information and all which was not true i was navigating using sea water temperature i caught on to that uh, current purely using temperature monitoring its temperature so if it would get too cold i will go north if it got too warm i would go south and i'm talking about sea water temperature and in 3 days i did 600 miles that was i think pretty good from there uh, you know fifth i reached fourth in a storm uh, again some dinghy sailing tactics from there um, i reached third and i remember i was uh, overtaking gregor uh, that day he was coming very strong on hf and uh, i went out and just scanned the horizon and there he was you know after almost 80 days of sailing he was just half a mile away from me and then i went inside and i said you need to polish your rear view mirrors <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah, I crossed uh, Gregor and then we had this storm. I was in third position. We had this really nasty storm and um, uh, the boat had a knockdown. Uh, um, I got stuck on top of the mast and then I fell uh, about nine meters onto the boom, which is an aluminum pole, injured my spine and I managed to get inside the boat and tried to clean up everything. And after 30 minutes, when I tried to stand up, I just couldn't stand. And that's when I realized there was something wrong with my back. And uh, I texted saying that uh, uh, my back is injured and I need rescue. I think we've heard this and and something that I wanted to actually ask you is that the minute you, I think, had an injury, you started thinking about the next race. Who, do, who does that and what, what made you do that? Well, that's you know, like extreme uh, levels of optimism. That's, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I, I remember I was lying in the boat, no food, no water. Uh, don't know when rescue is going to come. Bank account in minus, I don't know how many crores. <laughs> boat, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be able to walk again because of the back injury. And <laughs> I had a lot of time. So I decided <laughs> to plan for the next race, <laughs> which design to select, uh, what sort of a team to have, where to get the funding from. And I think that really helped me get out of that situation. What was your philosophy that you lived by that made you think like this and which really helped you at the moment, like on, on your fall and your crash, right? Like you were on the boat, quite helpless and just thinking about the next race. So what do you take back from that? What made you think like that? Um, the thing is, uh, uh, all these sailings have taught me one thing very clearly, which is that um, it is we who color our experiences. It is we who segregate them into good and bad. But if you uh, look at it from the point of view of the universe, it is just a, just an incident. It's just something that happened. So similarly, the accident, the spine fracture, they're just things that happened. I don't say it was a very bad thing. I don't say it's a fantastic thing either. It's just one thing that happened in my life, just like how I bought a car or, uh, you know, anything that's happened in my life. So I saw it as an incident, probably something to learn from and then, uh, you know, prepare for the next one. There's a saying that you say, I think in one of your TED Talks saying that, you think I'm a, I'm, I might be misquoting, but then you, you say that you think I'm a brave man, but all I want to be is a free man. What does that mean? Yes, the, the incredible amount of freedom that you get at sea is unbelievable. Now, people might think that it's a jail, which is just, you know, three meters wide and 10 meters long. You can't talk, eat, can't do a thing uh, normally. It's uncomfortable. There is salt in your hair, in your beard, eyes, armpits everywhere. Uh, everything is wet. Uh, it should be so uncomfortable. But fact is, uh, the amount of freedom that you get is unbelievable. And I'm talking about a f- kind of freedom that uh, humans on land cannot taste. Do you uh, do you go very deep into yourself, Abhilash, when you're out there? There is no other place to go. <laughs> you know, there is no uh, Netflix to watch. There is no friends to hang out with. Uh, there is no beautiful sights to see. Is that uh, what it, you crave all the time to go deep? It uh, It is something that naturally happens. Uh, you know, uh, when we are on land, uh, we are always stimulated by what's happening outside of us. Uh, we have friends to talk to. They stimulate us. We've got hoardings to look at. We've got advertisements uh, thrown at our face. We've got routines to follow. 
and we just don't find the time to uh, have a conversation with ourselves but it's sea it's the same sea and the same sky and it's the same boat and there is it doesn't stimulate uh, you know it doesn't um, entertain you and that's when you start uh, a journey inwards and in that journey the kind of uh, things that you experience the kind of things that you see the kind of things that you uh, learn about yourself uh, brings in an immense amount of freedom so what is your routine like on the sail like every day well uh, i had uh, to eat 4000 calories i had to uh, sleep at least for 5 hours a day so my day would you know 24 hours would revolve around this i'll try to catch up sleep at night but it's it's not like you sleep for 5 hours continuously uh, you sleep 15 minutes later you get up and check the compass if your boat has moved a bit or Uh, check the winds if they have changed, or go out and look for any other contact, and then come back and sleep. And you keep repeating this. Uh, morning with sunrise, you cook breakfast. Uh, then you do your you know morning routines and all that. Um, in Golden Globe race, I had to use the sun to locate my position. That used to take about three hours. Uh, other than this, um, a lot of uh, trimming and pre-trimming. The autopilot is not an electronic autopilot. Uh, so every time uh, uh, wind picks up, uh, the uh, tuning of the boat changes or the uh, trimming of the boat changes. So the boat goes in a different direction. So every time there's a wind change, you have to re uh, retrain the sails. You have to readjust the autopilot, and uh, there's a lot of work just to keep the boat running. Uh, we used to get uh, weather on ham radio. so which is you know it's it's not like you have a phone and you see on windy that it's going to be this way or that way we get it as uh, text on audio and you you get something like um, uh, low pressure centered around so and so south so and so east high pressure centered around so and so whatever and they say the uh, barometric pressure you have to write this down and then you take out a piece of paper you plot uh, these high pressures low pressures then you uh, figure out uh, you make your own weather predictions and then you figure out where do you want to keep your boat with respect to this you figure out uh, uh, where these low and high pressures are moving right so say day after tomorrow you want don't want to be in a place where the low pressure has moved into so you have to do all these things and uh, after the ham radio transmission we all uh competitors used to get on uh, hf and we used to speak with each other and we used to share our uh, weather assessment uh, you know have some chit chat fun and all that and then get back to making lunch and the it's it's endless work on a boat after your um, after your accident um it you recovered pretty fast but um, physically at least was there anything that you sort of uh, were there any sort of mental um, traumas that you went through and you had to overcome after that no absolutely not i kept a watch on my mind uh, i had no ptsd um, i remember that uh, after the accident after i was recovered every night uh, i would go back into the boat in a dream in the same situation but uh, there was no emotional uh, turmoil or uh, you know negative emotions attached with it and then i realized that probably my mind is trying to figure out 
what else I could have done to avoid that accident or uh, not had that incident. But um, there's been no negative mental connotations attached. I, mentally, I've been very healthy. In fact, I was really looking forward to uh, the recovery process itself. Uh, my legs were like, you know, violin strings with no muscles in them. And from there, in two months' time, two months from the surgery, I was back on duty. In six months, I was uh, declared fit by the Navy to fly and sail. And then, to the time I left the Navy, I was doing only these things. Well, Abhilash, in one of the articles about you, I read that you have some unfinished business with the ocean. And what is that? Well, I'm planning to uh, go back into the same race. I've realized that I've got 28 unfractured vertebrae. <laughs> so, <laughs> it means I can... <laughs> I can attempt at least uh, six or seven <laughs> circumnavigations. <laughs> uh, it's happening next year, 2022. And uh, um, I found a boat. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, getting the money in place. I've started a crowdfunding campaign for this. And at the same time, I'm looking for sponsors. Nice. So I, we're surely going to be um, making sure that our... Um, our listeners are going to be somehow be well noted about this particular campaign and we're going to do our best to sort of push this because we really want to see you out there. Um, why don't you Why don't you sponsor? I'll call my board 30-minute hustle. You'll be world famous. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, the last race got um, uh, earned media value uh, worth 1,400 crores. Wow. Uh, next race is going to be at least 3,000 crore rupees. And earned media value is the advertising equivalent. You'll have to spend that much of money in advertising to yeah. get this sort of a visibility. And the visibility is uh, worldwide. Before I went for my first GGR, I went to a lot of sponsors and they said uh, nobody follows sailing in India. But fact is, in that three months in which I was racing, India had the second highest online engagement in the world. Uh, news on the Golden Globe race peaked in September when I had the accident. So GGR is something that is, uh, you know, followed as an adventure, as a life story and not merely as a sport. And it's it's got a, uh, let's say, a huge span. It's, it's not like Olympics that a uh, uh, 100-meter race finishes in 10 seconds and, uh, you know, that's it. This goes on for at least a year. Going into Golden Grove Race uh, in 2022, am I right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, how has, is, is it again the same sort of pressures that you're feeling, at least uh, financially? Or, or what is it, what is new about this Golden Globe Race for you? Well, um, last time I did not know what I was getting into. I was very afraid of my own ability to carry out celestial navigation. Um, but uh, so in those terms, I'm more settled this time. I know where not to waste my effort. Another big difference is that last time I got into it, uh, invested my money in it, uh, and then started looking for sponsors. But uh, this time I'm very clear that uh, I need to have a sponsor first and then uh, I do the uh, other things. If I have a sponsor, things will fall in place very quickly. Um, otherwise, uh, I feel much less pressure this time. Last time I was in a position where I could not call it off. Mm. This time I can, if I have to. 
So Abhilash, you're preparing for the next race, you're raising funds, you're doing everything possible to get you back out there. How, how do you balance your time between doing this, your family, and like, how do you balance this time? Tell us about that. Um, Especially daytime with as well. Yeah, daytime I'm with my family. Uh, and uh, I do all my work uh, at nights. So I'm working till 2 to 3 in the morning. So it's, it's, it's pretty okay. And I don't have a job, which is a good and a bad thing. Uh, there is no financial security, but the good thing is I've got a lot of time. Values that you want to pass on to your kids, because I do think they play a very significant role in your life and you're very involved. And what is the value that you want to pass on? And if, what if, do you want to expect from a child growing up? If there's one, just one thing that I want to, I could tell them, it would be to go out and take risk. And, uh, you know, you can do that only till a certain age. Uh, and as a child, I want them to focus on everything, uh, be it sports, academics, or music, whatever. They have to focus on everything. Uh, later on in life, you can only focus on your strengths. You will really not have the time to focus on weaknesses. So these are the two things that I would want to tell them. Um, we have a couple of questions that we ask all our uh, interview, uh, all our guests is that, and um, I think it'll be fun with you is that, um, what is your favorite failure? Favorite failure? Of course, <laughs> the Golden Globe race. <laughs> it, it is my most expensive and biggest uh, failure. A very defining failure. What is the grit you have? Like, you know, what, what is that you want to keep instilling back into yourself? Well, I, I really can, you know, persevere. I can persevere for days, weeks, months, and I'm like, I'm like that drop of water to keep falling on the rock till it breaks, but I won't what, stop. What is the difference between perseverance and stubbornness? Uh, stubbornness is, <laughs> I think they are two, two sides of the same coin, <laughs> but probably stubbornness uh, uh, is a brainless way of being uh, mm. persevering. And so, I would say it, it's your process that makes you think yes. that you are persevering. Yeah. Abhinash, you are extremely strong mentally, so what are your mental routines and practices? Uh, well, being married is good enough. <laughs> 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 no, I'll tell you what. Um, right from childhood, I was very interested in philosophy. Um, I was, what, 20 when I was reading uh, non-dualism, Advaita Vedanta. Then during the last Golden Globe race, I was uh, reading uh, the principal Upanishads. Uh, so, um, well, what I can make of things... Uh, my worldview comes from uh, these philosophies that I've read and a lot of experiences that I've had. Uh, I think that's what uh, makes me mentally strong. And all these philosophies that you read, all these uh, you know scriptures that you read, they say that everything is an illusion, which is in a way true because it is your mind that is creating all these uh, realities around you. And if you can understand that much, you can... Uh, decide what sort of an illusion you want to see, right? Uh, so I've been taking advantage of that fact. <laughs> um, me and Pranab really like the fact that you touched on philosophy and uh, 
we'd actually like to know if there is one book that you would recommend to anyone and that you think is extremely valuable what what would it that be because you're such a voracious reader it's called 100 years of solitude okay <laughs> gabriel garcia marquez i read that book once every year without fail wow. i've been doing that since 97 and uh, abhilash what would your advice be your 21 year old self you're on the right track <laughs> <laughs> No, I might just tell myself buy Google stocks. <laughs> <laughs> How are you able to laugh at you so easily, uh, Abhilash? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I told you. You know, <laughs> there's so much of uh, illusion. Yeah. You can choose yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so. There are some uh, uh, mental tricks also which you can use to make your life better. See, everybody has got the same incidents happening in their life, right? You're born. you go to school you have parents uh, eventually you'll get a job you go to college all these things happen to everybody you can arrange the facts of your life in the way you want and uh, give that story the twist you want to give it it can be a humorous story it can be a you know a story of how hard you tried but uh, the world was against you and you kept failing uh, it can be uh, you know whatever So this is a choice that you have, and uh, in my story, I am a hero. Uh, of course, everybody is a hero in a story, but uh, there's a lot of uh, humor in it. Where do you think sailing is heading in India? Because recently, the Olympics and teams participating, and uh, what is your take on that? I've been in this uh, sport for the last twenty years, at least. Um, I remember the first nationals that I used to take part in. were the same bunch of people who would uh, take part in the racer nationals jump into the enterprise nationals jump into the 470 nationals and 420 nationals it was the same bunch of people who were doing all these sports but uh, um, and probably they were just what 10 15 people sailors serious ones from that time till now in the last let's say 15 years you go to a dinghy uh, nationals you have uh, at least 250 to 300 sailors and they are not uh, jumping boats they are sailing different different boats we have had uh, two no actually three circumnavigations one with stops one non stop six women going around the world we've had uh, four reach the olympics through qualification so if you were to extrapolate this graph i think uh, it's going to explode you even look at the number of uh, sailing clubs that have cropped up uh, the numbers are like really uh, on the upswing so you uh, you have very much been um, talking about how you want to get more more number of kids and people into sailing do you want to talk a little bit about that i guess that's where you're embarking on now yes yes you know uh, one thing i definitely uh, learned uh, from sailing is how a person changes um, you know how the especially if you're really young makes you patient it leads a lot of character development you learn a lot of skills big boats you have to learn how to cook how to clean how to uh, keep yourself healthy how to uh, you know maintain an engine uh, how to be a good teammate uh, so like that a lot of uh, good changes happen to people I believe that if India went to sea, uh, everybody in India went to sea, then in one generation we'll be a completely different country. 
that's what i believe personally i have seen that uh, whenever i go to see uh, do some big event and have an accident and come back uh people really get inspired and they want to you know go to see they they start um opening their eyes and ears and minds towards using sea as a training ground as something that can be used for leisure and all that so personally right now i want to take part in as many races as possible and uh, encourage more and more people to follow my path and but absolutely love this conversation and really inspired and and thank you for doing what you do and truly inspired thank you Thank you for listening to the 30 minute hustle podcast. You can follow us on Instagram for all our latest updates. Until next time signing off. This is Pranab and my co-host Janish.